0: For nearly 25 years, Roseman University has challenged the status quo, transforming education and graduating competent and compassionate healthcare professionals.
1: Roseman University is reimagining healthcare, healing patients and their families, solving health challenges by embracing discovery, and building programs that provide hope and improve health. Click the banner for more on Roseman's healthcare programs in nursing, pharmacy, graduate studies, and dental medicine, or see roseman.edu.
2: It's Wednesday Wonders, science fiction and fantasy on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG 13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult.
1: The Leviathan Chronicles, an audio adventure. The story thus far. The die has been cast, and our heroes and villains are racing to opposite sides of the globe. High on the Tibetan plateau, the luxurious Tangula Railway streaks towards Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, with Mai Li and Oberlin Sinclair on board. Mai Li revealed that she is a member of the Black Door Group and that Dr. Teng Sui, the scientist who discovered the Starstone in Tibet ten years ago, is her father. When the Hai Tenshi failed its mission to deliver the Starstone to Leviathan six years ago, Dr. Sui used his last moments on board to send Mai Li a message, urging her to believe that the Starstone was real and that she should seek it out. Because she and her father had been estranged for decades, Mai Li ignored him and assumed that he died when the Hai Tenshi went down. But strangely, Miley has received a message only seven days ago from her father containing GPS coordinates and instructions to meet him in three days' time. Those coordinates are in Tibet. But an imminent threat remains. Whip Roberts is alive and pursuing Oberlin and Miley. He is desperately seeking the briefcase that Oberlin stole from the Idrasil. Oddly, Miley's father referenced the briefcase in his most recent message. When Oberlin opened the briefcase, he found a sophisticated communications device that taps into a very faint signal from very far away. Two mysterious voices respond to Oberlin and state that they are being held prisoner in Leviathan. Meanwhile, deep under the South Pacific Ocean, McAllen, Tully, Anton and Harlequin are traveling in a stolen Nankatsu submarine. They are on a direct heading towards the Mariana Trench, where they hope to find the rogue Starstone and deactivate the deadly signal pulses it has been transmitting. Little do they know that they have been followed for days. And now, Chapter 20, The Starstone. Miles due south of Mariana Island, at a depth of 19,000 feet, the team of Anton, Harlequin, McAllen, and Tully are racing towards the Mariana Trench, the deepest part of the world's ocean. Their submarine, Guardian One, has been heading on a northeastern bearing for many hours. Anton and McAllen have been sleeping in the back, while Harlequin and Jeffrey Tully have been piloting the ship in the front. Most of their time has been spent familiarizing themselves with the incredible submarine but now the discussion was becoming a bit more personal.
3: Hey Harlequin, let me ask you something. What? How old are you?
0: That's not very polite, Mr. Tully.
3: No, seriously, I'm really curious. How old are you? <sighs>
0: I was born in the year 1526 in Edinburgh. That makes you... 483 years old. Give or take a few years that I was intermittently drunk during the Enlightenment. How do
3: you find this time, this... ...era compared to all of the other periods you've lived through. Boring. Seriously? What do you think defines this age? I don't know. Information? The internet? Oh,
0: please. Don't give me those insipid CNN sound bites. These times are defined by the sickening levels of narcissism that our society infuses into people. Blogs, reality TV, Prozac, Iron John. Greed and celebrity have always been present, but at least historically it was limited by class. Now that everyone can have a bloody TV show, every obligation of family, country, or community can be abandoned in pursuit of self-promotion. At least... Religion brought people together in reverence of something larger than themselves. Now, it's inconceivable that anything in the world can matter more than one's own ego. Humans achieved spaceflight, fought wars when they banded together as a nation. Now the only thing that will bring people together is a bloody award ceremony in L.A. So no, Mr. Tully, I don't find these times particularly promising or stimulating. I've been alive almost five centuries. I've never seen man's progress dimmer. Um...
3: Well, I kinda see what... Ah, fuck it, you're probably right. Five centuries probably counts for something. Something. Okay, so let me ask you something else. During that time... Did anybody else go... uh, I don't know how to say this, but did anyone else, like, go rogue? I mean, you don't work with Evangeline and the Edeners. I work for nobody, Mr. Tully. Why did nobody else choose that road? Who's to say they didn't? Because Senshin and Anton both said that you're the only one that hasn't picked a side between the
0: Edeners and the Rebellion. You really shouldn't believe everything Senshin tells you. It's a wonderful way to get yourself killed.
3: So there are other immortals like you that are just... Independent. Let's just say that I might be
0: one of the last living
3: independents. So what's the beef between you and Anton? You guys don't seem to like each other very much.
0: I consider him an impetuous lapdog, incapable of autonomous thought. I think he considers me a backstabbing traitor with no moral accountability. What he fails to realize is that just because you feel the need to fight a war, doesn't mean the world needs to fight with you. I owe nobody anything. I didn't choose this life.
3: You chose to become immortal.
0: No, I certainly didn't. In fact, I specifically chose not to be immortal. Wait, I don't get it. How can Because I was very, very ill. And the heart is a fickle thing. Wait a second, I thought- It's a very long, sad story that I'm sure your tender heart would appreciate, but we've been driving for over 12 hours now and I think I'm finally ready to get some sleep. Anton, get your sweet immortal ass up here and do some bloody driving. Wait a sec, Harlequin. Nankatsu knows about
3: uh, Harlequin. What exactly is that sound?
0: Warning. I, 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 Threat level active. I don't exactly know. Anton, stop playing around with McCallan and get up here now. Wait. What did you say about McCall? What the hell's going on? The usual. It appear that someone who doesn't like us has found us. Any thoughts on who that could be? Take a number. What's the enemy's position? We can't lock in on
3: it, but the computer says the torpedo was unguided.
0: Unguided means they were close enough to try and take the shot. Tally, take us down sharply and veer 50 degrees port. I'm going to see what counter defenses we have at our disposal. Got it.
1: Guardian 1's nose dipped sharply to the left as the submarine ducked below the sharp ridgeline running due north. Just as the ship's trailing rudder fell below the summit, Guardian 2 arose from the depths on the right side of the ridge. The predatory submarine was less than half the size of Guardian One because it was unmanned and designed as a single-purpose platform for war. The ship vaguely resembled a giant squid in that it had two large sensor pads that were extended on retracting stalks far beyond the length of its main body. Surrounding the center of the craft was a tight halo of missile and torpedo launch tubes of various sizes. The ship was in hunting mode and kept making violently sharp turns as it tried to detect any sign of Guardian One's position.
0: I'll man, the weapons station. Unfortunately, while you were having snoodle time with Macallan, Mr. Tally and I were taking this time to familiarize ourselves with this ship upon which our lives depend. Had you decided to do the same, you would know that there is no weapon station on Guardian One. This ship was meant as a multi-purpose research and detection vessel with strictly defensive stealth
4: capability. Well, then I suggest we get stealthy, because whatever's shooting at us is going to come around for a second pass.
5: Anton's right. Look at the passive sonar screen, whatever that thing is. It's trailing 500 meters behind us. Oh,
0: this is cute. What? The computer has identified our opponent as Guardian 2. It was the counterpart to this craft, and the two of them used to play war games with one another as Nankatsu perfected the art of creating the world's most lethal submarines. It's an unmanned robotic ship that has tremendous offensive capabilities governed by sophisticated AI systems, but it appears that its express purpose for existing is to chase down Guardian 1. Splendid.
5: It's closing, within 400 meters. Hey Harlequin,
3: what about trying that thing we read about on the aft sensor array?
0: That's good thinking, Mr. Tully. You should keep steepening our dive vector, I'll charge the battery for the sonic what's that just move anton
1: harlequin pushed anton aside to get at the control console on the left side of the cockpit
0: we're coming
3: up on the ocean floor in about 30
0: seconds good is the jellyfish loaded loaded
5: what the hell is the jellyfish guardian two within 300 meters level 15
0: seconds till we hit the ocean floor anton be a good stewardess and hand out those headphones hanging on the side we'll all very much want to put those on in the next three seconds
5: one. No, two torpedoes away. The computer says they've got a lock.
0: Ready? Ready. McAllen. hold
5: on.
1: Now. Tully pulled up hard on the control stick, leveling Guardian One just 30 feet from the ocean floor. Two Russian-made Skavl torpedoes raced towards the ship, instantly closing their target distance to less than 60 yards. But before they could close for the kill... A monstrous 210 decibel burst of sound erupted from the aft of Guardian 1, shattering the guidance control of the torpedoes and sending Guardian 2 swimming in spirals, bouncing off the underwater cliff walls. At the same time, two high-pressure jets of water moving over 200 miles per hour fired out of the side vents of Guardian 1, launching the ship over half a mile in under 10 seconds. Tully reached over Hold on. and grabbed McAllen's arm before she could be tossed backwards from the sudden burst of momentum. Anton, however, was thrown violently to the of the cabin, smashing his head into one of the storage doors. With <sighs> its initial burst of speed, Guardian 1 slowed quickly, but was now still coasting 30 feet over the ocean floor at over 20,000 feet deep. No sign of incoming torpedoes or Guardian 2. I have a
0: feeling we may have confused it, but not killed it. We, we still need a plan. <sighs>
4: (sighs) Nice fucking driving, Harlequin.
0: A
1: two-inch cut on the back of his head released a small pool of blood that now covered Anton's right shoulder.
0: Better your head than you becoming a floating bit of immortal seaweed, don't you think? Who knows? Anton,
1: come here. Let me look at that. Are you okay? McAllen held his face gently.
0: I'm fine. We need to get a fix on our
3: location. Can we use the external lights to see what's around us? Of course
1: an eerie emerald light emitted from the belly of Guardian 1. It shone down on the sea floor, glowing off the slime covered rocks, giving the illusion of peering through night vision goggles. Why is the light so green? Tully and Harlequin looked at each other conspiratorially. It became clear that while Macallan and Anton were sleeping, the two of them had spent considerable time familiarizing themselves with exactly how Guardian 1 operated.
0: Quite ingenious, actually. Clearly, Nankatsu Industries must have some knowledge of Leviathan and the existence of immortals on Earth. It's the only way they could have justified spending tens of billions of dollars on underwater research trying to design submersibles capable of operating in the ocean's most extreme depths. I'm not entirely sure how, but they were able to convince the Edeners to allow them to transport the stolen Starstone to Leviathan. What nobody seemed to realize is that Nankatsu has been acting as some sort of proxy for the Black Door Group. Nonetheless, they applied tremendous resources at creating revolutionary designs for submarines. But what's
3: so interesting is that they looked at biology to get their inspiration for their ships.
0: Why spend billions investing in research and development when nature has provided the ultimate testing lab through the beauty of deep sea evolution? How do you mean? It,
3: it, it's actually pretty amazing. They looked at some of the ocean's deepest critters to get ideas for their submarines. That sonic burst we just released was inspired from squid ink substituting sound waves as a sort of uh, smoke screen to escape a predator
0: and the jellyfish mode that shot us away from Guardian 2 was a Function of Nankatsu studying the cubozoan box jellyfish's movement and venom deployment Mimicking that the hull of our ship is actually a flexible membrane that absorbed a massive amount of water and maintained it under extreme pressure Before expelling it at high velocity of course it, it takes a fair bit of time to build up But it can be released in one giant push giving us a sporadic boost of speed to get out of a dangerous spot quickly Oh
5: my god. That's right. When we were back at the Proving Grounds, I touched the outside of Guardian 1. It felt squishy.
0: Our ship is ensconced in a non-Newtonian gel organically designed by Nankatsu. Normally, the harder you push on an object, the more likely it is to move. But here, the more force, or in this case pressure, that is applied, the harder the gel becomes. Much like cornstarch suspended in water. The deeper we go, the stronger the hull becomes.
4: Until it reaches its breakpoint.
0: Yes, sadly, there was no reference to a maximum operating depth. So.
5: What does all this have to do with the green light?
0: Phosphorescent bioluminescent electroconductive bacteria. Very good, Mr. Tully. Polysyllabic speech suits you rather well. There's
3: a layer of bacteria underneath the hull that glows when you give them a mild shock of electricity. It works at any depth, in fact. My god, look at the seafloor.
1: The bland seafloor that seemed devoid of any life suddenly erupted in a dense field of red worms, tiny clams, translucent shrimps, and crabs. The seafloor was no longer visible at all. In fact, when McAllen looked closer, she could see all the minuscule movement from the plethora of life that this vibrant oasis supported. What is that? It looks like feathers.
3: Tube worms. Pretty common around seismic areas, but I've never seen such a dense field of them. There must be tens of thousands of them. It's like a farm or something.
0: Passive sonar is getting some scraping sounds of metal against rock half a mile east of here. I'm afraid Guardian 2 might be getting its bearings
4: back. You said Guardian 2 was unmanned. That means it's governed by an artificial intelligence that isn't going to stop until we're destroyed. For
0: once, you might just be correct, Anton. Hey, Harlequin, take us on a heading 20
3: degrees west and drop us down another 20 feet. What
1: are you thinking, Tully?
3: I might just have an idea.
1: McCallum watched Tully as he leaned out of his cockpit seat and got closer to the curved front window of Guardian 1. His eyes were urgent, scanning the murder surface of the ocean floor 20. passive sonar just acquired a
4: target heading our way at high speed
0: I seem to recall mentioning the need for a plan a bit earlier there.
4: My God, there, look at it.
1: I
0: can't believe
4: it.
1: McAllen, Tully, Anton, and Harlequin all crowded around the front window of Guardian 1 and fell utterly silent. That is Remarkable. so Remarkable. Astonishing. Cool. Laying in front of Guardian 1 at 20,000 feet
5: underwater was a beautifully still lake. How can there be a lake here? I mean, we're already underwater, so I don't understand. It's actually
3: pretty rare. This phenomenon was first discovered 19 years ago in the Gulf of Mexico. You see, certain areas of the ocean create seawater with a much higher salinity than their ambient environment due to exposure of salt tectons. Your
0: oceanographic insights are quite fascinating, but need I remind you, Mr. Tully, that a killer robotic submarine is rapidly making its way to pay us a lethal visit?
3: No, Mr. Harlequin, you don't need to remind me, because this underwater lake is exactly where we're going to hide.
5: I
0: beg your
3: pardon? You are
5: amazing, Tully. Don't
3: thank me yet. Harlequin, can you- Already
0: on it. I'm going to take us out to the midpoint of this this underwater lake and then allow a slow descent. Was that your plan, Mr. Tully? You got it. How deep is the lake? I can't seem to get an exact depth reading. Great. No, no,
3: that's actually good. That means our sensors are reflecting off the surface of the underwater lake. I'm betting that if we shut down all systems and stay perfectly quiet, Guardian 2 won't be able to see us or detect us. That's quite a
4: gamble with our silence. If anything happens to McCallum-
3: It's then- a
0: good plan. The best we have right now but I hope it works. So shut up! Let's all shut up!
1: The submarine, Guardian One, silently glided into the middle of the silvery pool of liquid that lay at the bottom of the ocean. As the ship hovered inches above its surface, small silent ripples lapped the shoreline. And then, equally soundless, Guardian One descended into the murky lake water and vanished completely from view.
0: Shutting down all systems, I'm afraid that's going to cause the temperature to drop quite a bit. I'm afraid that will affect you the most, Mr.
1: Tully. The fact struck Tully suddenly. He realized that he was the only human in the room and wouldn't have the heightened strength and stamina that the Immortals had. Previously, he had imagined that all of this was a game of us against them, the mortals versus the Immortals. But then he remembered that he and McAllen no longer shared a common genetic code. Not anymore. Not now that she was immortal. He suddenly felt very far away from someone he thought he was growing closer to. The group fell silent in the dark command center of Guardian One. Their bodies unconsciously gravitated closer together for warmth. They all knew it would be a long, cold wait to see if they'd survive. 12 hours later, Anton was the first person to break the silence.
4: We would have heard something by now. I mean, if something was wrong. What about active
3: sonar?
0: We disable Guardian 2's sonar array with the sonic ink burst we deployed when getting away. The only way that Guardian 2 could find us would be visually, or using some other form of
5: tracking. And if they haven't found us yet... Then the coast might be clear.
0: Then the coast might be clear. Hiding is what we all do best.
5: So despite the darkness, agreement
1: was established that it was time for Guardian 1 to rise out of the underwater lake that had safely concealed it for the past 12 hours. The ship slowly emerged from the silvery pool of super-salinated ocean water and quickly headed on a western bearing.
4: Where to? It shouldn't be much further. I want you to head to these coordinates. I found them in the Repetiment disk we stole.
5: And what's waiting for us at these coordinates?
4: Answers, hopefully. I've scoured the Nankatsu data files to learn everything I can about what happened to the ten Apparently it experienced an unexplained malfunction while descending into the Mariana Trench near Leviathan. Nankatsu doesn't know exactly what happened to its ship, but it does know these coordinates. Which represent what? the last known location of the high tenshi
5: and you think that's where the rogue starstone might be
4: i don't know but it's a good place to start
5: Four hours
1: later, the smooth ground beneath Guardian One dropped off sharply. Soon, only a sheer cliff lay beneath them. McAllen hadn't realized it, but she had taken some degree of mental comfort watching the seafloor race by her window. It gave her a vague sense of progress, that she was heading to face something. But now the ship came to a stop and hovered in complete blackness, no longer having anything visual to orient itself by.
4: This is it. We've almost reached the coordinates. How much further is almost? 7,000 feet. Straight down.
5: Anton, how deep are we going?
4: 27,000 feet. That's halfway down the trench wall.
5: Harlequin, can Guardian One do a dive that deep?
0: As I said earlier, when Tully and I were going over the schematics to the ship, we found no reference
4: to a maximum operating depth. The short answer is, I don't know. Doesn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter? I mean it doesn't fucking matter to us. There's a time bomb down there. A mental time bomb that's trying to kill every immortal on the planet. And given enough time, it will. So whether I die now or live another six months really doesn't matter one fucking bit to me. The only one this affects is you. What? He's right.
5: Anton is right, Tully. We have to do this. Anton, Harlequin, and I, we're living on borrowed time. My family is at stake. And according to these guys, I'm the only one that can stop this starstone. I felt it, Tully. This thing is real. And if I don't stop it, a thousand other immortals may eventually die too. The three of us have to dive deeper to find the starstone. You don't. This needs to be your call. You're still mortal, and this thing won't stop.
3: Stop it. Just stop it. Don't do this. Don't- Kelly,
5: I'm only saying this because-
3: Have I proven my loyalty to you? Have I hesitated for one second to protect you and stick by your side, even as this stupid adventure gets crazier and crazier? Have
5: I? No. No, you haven't.
3: Then point the fucking sub down and let's go diving.
5: Guardian
1: One's nose dipped slightly, and the ship headed downward into the inky void of the Mariana Trench. As the ship drifted back closer to the trench walls, its descent began to accelerate. McAllen leaned closer to the window, and saw the rock face of the trench fly past her. It wasn't hard to imagine that the ship was in freefall. Cully sat in the co-pilot's chair and said nothing. He kept waiting to hear the typical sound of metal compression as the ship passed 23,000 feet, but he heard nothing. Only some unfamiliar mechanical sounds coming from within Guardian 1.
4: Harlequin, increase power to the underjets. We need to stabilize at 27,000 feet.
1: McCallum felt the floor push up against her tired legs as she realized they were slowing down.
5: This is it. Anton thinks the Starstone is here. This is what I was designed for. What if I fail? What if I can't do the one thing I'm supposed to do? What will happen to everyone what will happen to me
3: depth gauge reading 27,000 feet Your show, Anton. Mr. Tully, please take
4: us in closer to the wall.
1: Guardian One slowly inched towards the trench walls.
4: Focus a spot beam dead ahead. I want to get a better look at the trench.
1: A beam of light, less intense than the traditional spotlight, illuminated the trench wall that was now 25 feet away from Guardian One. The odd angle of the light cast dark, sinister shadows along the trench. Directly ahead lay a large setback ledge that contained what looked like hundreds of large boulders piled on top of each other. The top of some sort of cavern could be seen through the rock. Rocks, but the boulders prevented any closer examination. McAllen noticed that there was not the slightest sign of coral or marine vegetation and certainly no animal life. Dead.
5: This place is utterly dead.
4: The starstone is somewhere here. I can feel it.
5: I feel it too. So do I.
4: Well, I don't feel anything, but it looks like we've got a problem. Please try to tell us something other than the
3: glaringly obvious, Mr. Tully.
5: Anton, let him talk.
3: Well, in order to, what do you call it, commune with this
4: Starstone, Stone, McCallan has to actually make physical contact with it, right? Isn't that the way it works? We presume so. Very few people have actually witnessed a communion. Evangeline typically only has her closest advisors around her when a new star stone is unlocked from its inert state.
0: Didn't make the cut, Anton? And I
4: suppose you have.
0: As a matter of fact, I have. And Mr. Tully is precisely correct. McCallum will have to actually physically touch the Starstone for it to read her DNA sequence and determine that she is the chosen one. Or at least trick it into thinking she is Evangeline.
5: Fine.
3: No, see, it's not fine. We're at 27,000 feet underwater. No part of you can be exposed underwater. At this pressure, your head would impl- like a grape getting squeezed. Your rib cage would collapse instantly, not to mention that the water is practically freezing. So, I'm not sure how you're gonna make physical contact with it here.
5: Okay, fair point. Well, I mean, the ship is designed for scientific exploration. You know, collecting samples to examine later. Maybe there's a way to get the starstone inside. Yeah,
3: I thought of that too, but let's remember what we're dealing with. This starstone is constructed out of some insanely dense substance. We're talking thousands, tens of thousands of tons of mass. Nankatsu had to build an underwater blimp just to support transporting something that heavy. From what the records of the High Ten Shi show, as soon as the ship lost its ballast, the blimp part of the ship, the starstone just started dragging the High Ten Shi down into the abyss in an awful big hurry. <laughs> Even if we could move the Starstone, we couldn't take it on board the ship. It'd be suicide.
0: So does hovering just a few yards from it waiting for another signal burst to fry all of our brains into a lovely tapioca. Not you, of course, Mr. Tully. You get to drown or get blown up by Guardian
5: 2. Stop it, Harlequin. Nobody's going to die or get blown up. Just have to
3: think. If this ship had any armament, we could maybe detonate some sort of device to destroy or
4: further bury. Them. Haven't you heard anything I said? A starstone is a thousand times denser than lead. You're not going to blow it up, you imbecile. Then you come up with a better
3: suggestion. Guys,
5: guys, fucking cool it, okay? Harlequin, when Evangeline was brought a new starstone to Leviathan, how was it typically delivered? What
0: do you
3: mean?
5: I mean, was it contained within a vessel used by Leviathan, or was it somehow towed externally? What I'm trying to get at is whether or not the starstones had direct contact with the ocean.
0: No. No, I don't believe they had. I believe they were always contained in one of the special carrier crafts that were used for physical transport to and from the surface. Isn't that your recollection, Anton?
4: Yeah, I, b- I believe that's right. One of the carrier craft or one of the smaller Vespa-class vessels, it just depended on the size of the star stone. They come in different sizes? Oh, yes.
5: Well, I've got a theory about this starstone. If seawater has always had some sort of adverse effect on starstones, and based on what you're telling me about Evangeline's handling of them in the past, it must, then how is this starstone? which is clearly operational still functioning, something must be going on. Tully, how far can you get us into that cavern? With
3: those boulders in the way, we're not going anywhere. But even if we could move them, Guardian 1 is still way too bulky to fit through that thing.
0: Well, I think I might be able to help with that.
1: Harlequin rose from his cockpit chair and strode past Anton, McCallan and Tully towards the rear of the cabin. He gave a small wave of his hand motioning the others to follow him. There were four doors in the aft of the cabin. The first was a supply closet that McCallan had discovered shortly after departing from the Nankatsu Submersible Proving Grounds. She had automatically assumed that the other three doors held a storage function as well. But when Harlequin opened the rightmost door, McCallan could clearly see that it was not another supply closet, but rather a small elevator The four of them squeezed in uncomfortably and descended one level downwards. McAllen entered the lower level of Guardian 1, and was surprised at how large it was. The footprint was the same as the upper command level, although the ceiling was a few feet higher. But without all of the flight controls and scientific monitoring equipment, the area was surprisingly spacious. In fact, the only objects on the entire floor were five large rectangles that seemed to contain an incredibly dense amount of mechanical gears compacted together. My god,
5: what are those?
0: Apparently, they're underwater mechs. What's a mech? A mech is an anthropomorphic robotic vessel that mimics the pilot's physical movements exactly. It's like a big metal robot that you get to crawl inside and pilot.
5: I have no idea how to pilot that.
0: That's the entire point. There's very little to know. You just move as you would normally move. Walk as you would normally walk. The mech has two arms and two legs and will follow your movements exactly. The pilot's chamber is at the center of the mech's torso. They were clearly designed for operational use at extreme depth. How can you tell? There's no plexiglass or windows from which the pilot may view the exterior. Instead, a series of monitors surround the pilot giving him a complete 360 degree view of the immediate area around the mech. Sort of a virtual reality. Total fly-by-wire. Exactly.
5: So you think one of these things can move the boulders on the outside and maybe squeeze into that cavern? I haven't
0: the slightest idea, but they were clearly designed to do something, something very deep. Hey McAllen.
3: even if these things can move those boulders, and even if you can get inside the cavern and see the star stone, if that's where it is, what good is that going to do? You can't commune with it. I've
5: got a theory. If that...
4: I'll go first. What? What? (laughs) We need to test to see if this mech is operational and can withstand the depth that we're currently at. We can't risk anything happening to Macallan. She's the only one that can shut down this Starstone. Harlequin, it's best if you stay on board to monitor. If something goes wrong or communications go down, I should be able to attune with you. And what about Mr. Tully? As far as I'm concerned, he's fine where he is.
1: Tully stood in silence and glared at Anton. Well then, it's decided. Let's
0: get into our costumes and get ready for the ball.
1: The four of them walked to the loading area for the folded mechs. As they got closer, McAllen could see that the mechs were lined up with their legs drawn up into their chests and their arms folded. This made for a very compact shape, which was paramount due to the limited room for maneuvering within the belly of the sub. The folded mechs were about eight feet long, and the pilot entered from the hatch in the backplate. I don't get it. Where's the cockpit?
5: There's no window.
0: No, of course not. Think of the depth we're operating at. These compact mechs can't afford some thick, heavy plexiglass window because of their smaller size. Once you're secured inside, every inch surrounding you will be covered in curved video monitors designed to give a complete 360-degree view of the environment around you. By being hermetically sealed in the pilot's chamber, you'll be kept safe at even deeper depths than this.
1: On the left side of the mech stood a row of lockers and tool cabinets. Both Anton and McCallum put on specialized pilot suits that transmitted their every body motion into the arms, legs and fingers of the mech. Harlequin reached into one of the pilot's chambers and pulled out a small half-sphere that was connected by an umbilical cord inside the mech.
0: Put this on.
1: Harlequin fastened the half-sphere to the front of Anton's face.
0: It's a rebreather. It covers your full face so that communications and visuals shouldn't be a problem.
5: Wait, I don't understand. We're not scuba diving. We're going to be driving these mechs. Why do we need regulators?
0: It's actually quite ingenious. Prior to launch, the interior of the pilot's chamber becomes flooded with a reactive gel that transmits all of the pilot's motions to the sensor that surround the cockpit. It was also designed to keep the pilot neutrally buoyant as well as offer resistance to increase tactile sensation.
3: So, they drive these things while floating in goo?
0: Good work, Mr. Tully.
5: Yes, they drive these things while floating in goo. Just another mud bath at the spa. Let's get moving. Anton, you ready to do this?
4: I said that I was going to go first. You're
5: forgetting we're a team, Anton. You're not here to save me. I'm here to save you. I'll see you in the water.
1: McAllen and Anton climbed into the pilot chambers in their respective mechs and felt the heavy backplate close and seal behind them. Instantly, both chambers began to rapidly fill up with a pale purple viscous gel, causing McAllen to tug gently on her faceplate to ensure its integrity. As the fluid filled the entirety of the chamber, McCallan felt the gel pushing on her in an odd way. Before she knew it, the gel had gently pushed her knees towards her chest and tucked her arms inward, mimicking the position of the mechs. It wasn't lost on McAllen that she was now floating in the fetal position in a pocket of warm fluid.
5: Anton, can you read me?
4: Loud and clear. All systems are nominative.
1: The floor beneath the folded mechs lowered and placed McAllen and Anton into individual chambers that now were beginning to flood with seawater.
0: Are you ready for launch, McAllen? Ready. I know I don't need to worry about you, Anton. I'm quite sure you were born ready. Or something trite like that. Launching. (laughs)
1: Launching. Two metal bricks were ejected out of the rear of Guardian One and tumbled end over end. At Anton's command, the two of them snapped their legs downwards and stretched out their arms. Instantly, a human shape erupted from the two dense metal blocks being hurled through the dark ocean. Two 15-foot legs extended below and long, thin arms almost the same length unfolded from the side. The legs bent backwards, the opposite of the way a human knee bent, giving the mechs a slightly reptilian appearance. But as anthropomorphic as the mechs seemed, their lack of any head structure above their arms increase the eeriness of their silhouette. Every time McCallum moved her leg, the mech moved in perfect synchronicity with her. When she looked down, she saw her own mechanical legs illuminated by a small pilot light on the undercarriage. This giant mechanical monster felt like an effortless extension of her own body. Anton, this is amazing.
5: It's like we're flying.
4: Well, sinking would actually be more appropriate. Push both of your toes downwards at the same time to activate the propulsion jets. Well done, now lights.
5: My god, Anton, this is just pretty
4: amazing, even by my standards.
1: McAllen looked out to see the sheer rock face of the trench descending downwards thousands of feet. Even more remarkable was seeing her feet, her mechanical feet dangling free with nothing but blackness beneath them, as if she were magically hovering in the air. She looked up and saw the same cliff rising upwards as far as she could see. As McAllen turned her head, she found that the automated spotlight followed her and she could just make out Guardian 1 hovering in the distance. How are you
3: doing over there, McAllen?
5: This is really Wild Tully, you gotta try one of these. Yes,
1: yes, I'm sure we'd all like to ride on Space Mountain, but there's a
0: killer sub-drone still wandering around, and a star stone in imminent proximity that could lobotomize us in under a nanosecond. So can we please stay slightly more focused on our survival? What
5: a grouch. No
4: kidding. I think I found something here. McCallan, could you get closer and give me a bit more light? Coming. It's some sort of shrapnel.
1: Anton's mech pulsed closer to the trench wall and grabbed it with its claw-like right hand. The mech's left hand easily picked up the six-foot scrap of steel.
5: Wait a minute. I think there's some sort of writing beneath it. Can you make it out?
1: McAllen tilted her head,
5: causing her mech to go into a crouch next to Anton. Yeah, it's some sort of Chinese characters. Are you guys getting this on Guardian One?
0: Yes. They appear to be numbers. It says Type 65 Wasp. It's a Chinese torpedo casing. I believe we've just discovered the wreckage of the Hai-Ten Shi. McAllen, Anton, I'm going to take Guardian 1 50 meters back and apply the full floodlights. I'd like you to both hover back with me so you don't get blinded.
1: Both Anton and McAllen relaxed their fingers, causing their mechs to loosen their tight grips on the canyon walls. Before they could sink, each of them applied their hover jets to come alongside Guardian 1 while it illuminated a quarter square mile of the Mariana Trench.
0: My gosh. Remarkable.
1: A crater. A vertical crater at least 250 meters wide. It looked like a massive meteor had punched into the sides of the canyon walls. The rock face that was chiseled and smooth heading straight downward drastically curved inwards, causing loose boulders the size of small automobiles to be littered in the crater's belly. With the added illumination provided by Guardian One, McAllen could see bits of metal scoring and debris embedded in solid rock. Clearly, a massive explosion had taken place here. We're not
5: here for the high ten chi, are we, Harlequin?
4: No. No, we're not. Based on the data telemetry the ship transmitted prior to to blowing up, it was listing hard to port which would have brought the cargo section of the high ten chi, meaning the starstone part, closer to the canyon walls. Based on the size of the explosion, it would have propelled the starstone directly in the canyon walls.
0: Starstone material is far denser than mere granite, so it must still be intact somewhere inside the mountain. McCallan, can you jet back to the
3: trench walls? I want to take a closer look at something.
5: What am I looking for, Tully?
3: Actually, can you get further inside the crater? Over on the left, where all that rubble is? Smart man. I don't get it. See how the boulders further inside on the left are smaller than all the others? I'm guessing something really heavy tore through the side of this mountain to make rock this thick look that small.
1: Anton's lips tightened slightly, and he admonished himself silently for not seeing the obvious sooner.
5: Anton, use your mech to help me move some of these boulders.
1: Anton maneuvered his mech like a rock climber moving laterally along the face of the cliff. When he got to the edge of the crater, he was able to walk on two legs again, sticking one of the mech's arms out for stability. He positioned himself alongside and together they each lifted the boulders that were stacked high and hurled them over the side of the ravine. Hovering close by, Harlequin and Tully kept repositioning Guardian 1 so as to maximize the illumination provided by the ship's front searchlight. For two hours, the mechs worked painstakingly to remove each boulder carefully in order to prevent a rock slide within the crater. Slowly, the amount of debris in the cavity began to lessen, and after the last four of the largest boulders at the bottom were removed, McAllen and Anton stumbled on something extraordinary.
5: My god! It's a tunnel!
0: McAllen! I can't exactly make out what you're looking at. Can you describe it?
5: My god, it looks like a tunnel or cavern leading straight into the mountain.
4: Look at the walls.
0: Yeah,
5: it looks pretty clean. Almost perfectly circular. Not much abrasion on the rocks. The Starstone must have shot through this at some insane velocity to create a tunnel like this. It must have taken a lot of energy
3: to- A nuclear torpedo might do that.
5: Well, the question is, where is the Starstone now?
4: I think it's pretty clear that the Starstone must lie inside that cavern we saw.
5: I was afraid you'd say that.
0: It looks like the tunnel is about 20 feet in diameter. Will that provide you with enough clearance to maneuver the mechs?
4: It looks pretty tight, but it's not like we have much choice. It's not like you're going to fly Guardian 1 through that tunnel.
1: There was no reply from Harlequin or Tully. McAllen looked over at Anton and started maneuvering her mech towards the cavern.
4: I'm not sure it's quite wide enough for us to walk through.
1: I agree. Maybe we can fly through.
4: How
5: can... Just... Just watch.
1: McAllen's mech bent at the knees and placed its headless torso into the tunnel, clearing the sides by several feet. She then extended her legs outward again, flexing her toes, causing the aqua jets to pulse on, which propelled her through the long, narrow cave.
4: How would you learn to be such a good pilot?
1: Maybe it's the company I'm keeping.
4: Maybe I'll have to start giving you lessons on the Condor. Let's try to keep the chatter down out there. I want to keep the lines of communication open in case we run into a problem.
1: Anton followed McAllen's lead, and soon both were flying
5: horizontally through the tunnel, bisecting the trench. Anton, do you notice anything odd about the tunnel? Yeah,
4: the, the walls are perfectly smooth from- No,
5: no. Look around us. There's practically no sediment. The water is gin clear.
4: It could be an exiting current that we're just not feeling, leading I out think to. think we
5: both know. It has nothing to do with current. The two swam on in silence
1: for more than 10 minutes. McAllen. The captain. We're losing a signal. Can you pin? The captain.
4: Respond. I think we just lost Guardian One.
5: We are inside of a mountain.
4: Technically, it's actually a crevice in the Earth's mantle.
5: I think it's widening up ahead.
4: You're right. There's a large chamber ahead.
5: It's. It's hot. Look, the walls, they're illuminated.
4: I see, there's some, some sort of
1: light source up ahead. The
5: tunnel looks like it opens up into some sort of cavern in another 15 meters. It's getting brighter. Oh
1: my god. The tunnel emptied out into a massive internal cavern, hundreds of feet long and at least three stories high. The walls of the tunnel were rounded and curved sensually in waves and ripples, which led McAllen to think that this must be some form of a massive lava tube. But that wasn't what concerned her. The entire chamber was lit up brighter than daylight.
5: It's here. I can feel it. I can feel it too. There!
1: While the cavern was completely flooded in bright light, it was not hard to discern that the source of the light came from the far wall. McAllen and Anton moved the mech slowly towards the fierce illumination.
4: McAllen, check your temperature reader.
5: Are you seeing what I'm seeing? The water. It's boiling can't be volcanic activity. That's crazy. No,
4: it can't be volcanic activity. It's this star stone. It's behaving so oddly. I've never heard of one exhibiting this type of activity.
5: Let's get closer.
4: McCallum!
1: Anton realized he didn't know what to say. Of course they had to get closer, but something was wrong here. He knew danger was close. Anton rushed his mech across the cavern to stop McCallum, but as soon as he got in front of her, his mech slammed into something impossibly hard, oh. throwing him to the ground. Oh. What happened? Anton, Look. And then he saw it. The source of the blue illumination that filled the cavern was not the actual Starstone, but some sort of field that sealed off the back chamber where the stone lay. Anton pushed back against the field only to find it unyielding. He pulled his fist back and let one punch fly through the water. But the only effect it had was to bend one of the claws on the mech's left hand. Anton, stop!
4: There's some sort of force field surrounding the star stone. I have an idea how we can break through. And
5: do what? This force field is what's keeping half the ocean from falling on top of that star stone. If that happens, I can't commune with it. So please cool it with the gently moves. Well,
4: you're not going to commune with anything out here. You'll need to get closer in order yeah. to... Yeah,
5: yeah, I know. Just let me, let me just try.
1: McAllen felt her mind being pulled towards the glowing blue sphere on the other side of the force field. She concentrated on it, but it had the distinct feeling it was concentrating on her. Speaking to her, she took one step closer to the force field and felt the energy around her shift very subtly my God. The force field which had been filling the cavern with hot blue light suddenly shimmered silver in the area directly in front of McAllen's map. McAllen,
4: it's a doorway.
5: How... How did you... I introduced myself. It's... Been waiting for me.
4: Macallan, you must be careful in how you commune with- But
5: Macallan
1: paid no heed to Anton. She piloted her mech through the silver part of the blue force field that now allowed passage. Anton quickly followed behind. Once through, he gasped when he saw the blue sphere that was now directly in front of him. My
4: god! I haven't seen one of these in a very long time.
1: McAllen was no longer listening to Anton. She had moved her mech onto the ground and back into the fetal position. Anton almost screamed out when he saw the backplate of McAllen's mech open. But he quickly read his scanner and saw that the ambient environment was 78% nitrogen and 22% oxygen. The pressure stood at one atmosphere. Astounding. But before he could finish his thought, he saw that McAllen had already walked over to the Starstone. She stood just a few feet from it, her silhouette blurring its intense blue light. She was becoming one with it. She knew it could kill her. At any given second, it could kill her and Antoine instantly.
5: But she was drawn to it. It called to her, whispered to her. She needed to touch it. Not just touch, commune with it. Yes, I understand the word now. So beautiful. She stepped closer and held her arm McCallan, out. Macallan,
4: you need to be careful. Evangeline always... Her
1: trembling hand now just inches away.
4: Macallan, no!
1: He was too late. Uh, Her hand dropped and fell squarely on the glowing blue sphere. A searing azure fire erupted from the Starstone and engulfed Macallan. It was searing hot, yet didn't burn her. Like a computer virus, Macallan could feel the Starstone invade her and flood every private crevice of her mind. It knew her, and in one instant she knew it. Something crawled in her stomach. This mysterious presence. It was angry, seething, malicious. She felt bound to something diseased. Something that was trying to spread its disease into her. Consume her. Eradicate her. (laughs) HELP! <laughs> felt a burst of heat, followed by the sensation of pressure building in her body. The Starstone opened to her, but now threatened to devour Macallan like a starving wolf. No, no, stop. It just has to stop. The Starstone pushed on her consciousness, no. but she pushed Please back. Stop. Her mind raced to images of water dousing a raging fire or trying to soothe a wild, vicious animal. Stop. You need you to be need quiet. Quiet, just quiet. Just quiet, 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 and die. Just, just die. 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 Finally, she could feel the pressure in her body releasing and the heat around her subsiding. The Starstone retreated from the corners of her body that it had invaded, and her vision was returning to normal. The Starstone was now inert. The threat was gone.
5: (coughs) It's over. It's finally over.
1: McAllen slumped to her knees against the dormant Starstone.
5: We did it, Anton. We're safe. The Starstone is inactive. The signal won't hurt anybody anymore. Nana, Senshin. Everybody's gonna be okay. Anton?
1: Anton was lying motionless on the floor of the cavern. McAllen rushed over and saw that a small trickle of blood had formed in the left corner of his mouth.
5: Anton, Anton,
1: come on, no, no. She grabbed both sides of his face and tried to look for any signs of consciousness in his vacant eyes, but there was nothing. Only after pressing her ear to his chest did she detect the slightest heartbeat. It was faint and irregular, but it was
5: still something. I've got to get him out of here. I've got to get him back on board Guardian One. I can't, can't lose him. Harlequin will know what to do. He's got medical training and he understands. Then it hit her. How
1: exactly was she going to get Anton back to Guardian One? Surely McAllen had her mech, but she couldn't exactly carry Anton's body outside. The two of them were still safely behind a force field generated by the inert starstone. Getting back to Guardian One would have to entail exposing Anton's mortally wounded body to 27,000 feet of pressure. She couldn't move him a single foot out of the cavern without killing him. She was trapped with no way to save him. She could only sit and watch the man that had saved her own life several times now just slip away into blackness. There was no way that- wait. If I can get him back inside his
5: mech, it'll mimic his body. I might be able to carry him out of here.
1: McAllen sprinted to Anton's mech to open the pilot hatch in the back. She then ran back to Anton's limp body and stared at it. Anton was six foot
5: four, and she never thought she'd be capable of lifting him up. But I also never thought I'd be immortal. And commune with the energy of a thousand stars. I'm not letting you down, Anton. I will not let you down.
1: McAllen picked Anton up over her shoulders and carried him to his dormant mech. She placed him inside and strapped the rebreather to his face before activating his mech and allowing the chamber to fill with the purple gel. The mech violently shedded to life, and then fell limp, mimicking Anton's condition. McCallum raced to get back to her own mech, and once inside, she moved it over to where Anton lay. McCallum reached for Anton's mech, and lifted the limp mechanical body in her arms. Now carrying Anton, McCallum piloted her mech out of the force field and back into the main chamber, before entering
5: the tunnel that led to the open ocean. Just a few more minutes, Anton. You've got to hang on for a few minutes until I can get you onto Guardian 1. They'll have some crazy Nankatsu sick bay on board, and Harlequin will know exactly how to work it perfectly. You're going to be fine, Anton. It was difficult maneuvering through the tight
1: tunnel that led out to the trench. McAllen went first, and then pulled Anton's limp mechanical body, like a young girl dragging her doll behind her. When she finally reached the crater in the open ocean, she picked Anton back up in her arms, and looked off the trench walls to see Guardian 1 hovering in the distance. There's Guardian 1. We're gonna make. Miss- Take it, Anton.
5: Tully, do you read me? Tully, I need you to get us out of here fast. Anton's unconscious and barely breathing. Tully. Harlequin. You guys need to hurry. You need to get here. Me-
1: Guardian One vaporized in front of her eyes. Another submersible shot through the debris and then headed up and away from the trench. She had just enough time to read the letters on the side of the craft. It read, Guardian 2. You have been listening to The Leviathan Chronicles by Christoph Leputka. For more episodes and information, log on to www.leviathanchronicles.com.
6: Hello everyone, this is Christoph, your author and creator of the Leviathan Chronicles. And it feels so good to be back. You've just finished listening to chapter 20, the Starstone, the return of Macallan, Tully, Harlequin, and Anton. We've gone back to our main storyline and are going to be following that through the end of the season. There is only five more chapters to go to the end of season one of the Leviathan Chronicles. There was a huge delay in delivering this episode, and there were just a lot of factors going into that, but all I can do is assure you that Chapter 21 is well underway. In just a few days from the release of this episode, I'm going to the studio to finish our first round of edits on it, so it really shouldn't be too long before that drops. I'm anticipating having a really clean release schedule. You've got a full Soapbox episode dropping along with Chapter 20, but I'm going to play a couple promos on this feed right now. Some really, really amazing promos. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. I'm very, very happy to have them. The first is Murder at Avedon Hill by P.G. Holyfield. Now, Murdered Avadon Hill is a co-finalist in the Parsec Awards for Best Audio Drama along with Leviathan Chronicles. I think it's an amazing production by P.G. Holyfield. You guys should definitely check it out. I recently did an interview with P.G. Holyfield and you can find that on his feed on his website. It's been really great to talk to him about our brand of podcasting, our audio dramas, doing uh, more serialized fiction. I'm so looking forward to hanging out and having some beers with him at Dragon Con. Also, we have Age of Zombies from Dave Frizzell of Necropolis Studios. This sounds like an awesome horror podcast. What's cool about all the promos you're hearing is they are full audio dramas. And the sound effects on Age of Zombies sounds really, really, really good. This is a really high production quality podcast. Guys, definitely check it out. We've also got the promo to Batman No Man's Land, created and produced by the amazing, incredibly talented Laura Post. We love Laura because Laura also has been kind enough to lend her talents to Evangeline. She is the voice of Evangeline. She rocks. She's awesome. She has created this podcast for Batman, which I'm a huge fan of. Definitely check this one out. We're also going to be playing the promo to Chris Moody's Catusverse. Chris Moody is the creator of Patio Media Chat, who a couple months ago was kind enough to do an interview with me. I really enjoy talking with him. I know his podcast is going to be great. Please check it out. And the last trailer... I am super excited about because this is a trailer to an incredibly special production called Star Trek Phoenix. And some of you that have been following my Facebook and my Twitter know that I had the privilege of going out to Seattle, Washington recently to be part of Temporal Studios' production of Star Trek Phoenix. And I met the most incredible bunch of people that are really at the forefront of fan-produced content. And they are putting together uh, a full-fledged production of the next Star Trek series. Said several decades after Star Trek Nemesis, it's a new Ascension-class starship called Phoenix. And they invited me onto their film set that they were shooting over two days in Seattle, where they had, I mean, a full production. And I was incredibly fortunate to be part of it. I really made, I feel like, 60 amazing friends out in Seattle. And the quick funny story was, when I went out there, I sat on their production meeting and they're talking about kind of what they needed to get done for the shoot over that weekend and I brought some Leviathan t-shirts with me because they've been so generous and so nice um, that I wanted to give something back so everybody's looking at their t-shirts and they say well Christoph we have a present for you and their unbelievably cool prop master Chris Collins Lubin actually gave me a star stone. He gave me a star stone, people. It was a beautiful, about softball-sized model of the star stone that I had described that Evangeline found on uh, on Elkanor Island. Uh, and he put ancient runic carvings on the starstone, saying this is a property of Christophel. Putka. It's just so incredibly cool and thoughtful. So to everybody out there, to Star Trek Phoenix, I send you much love. I can't wait to see you guys again. For all my fans, we may have a very... Special project coming for Leviathan soon that I'm working with uh, Temporal Studios on. But more on that in future episodes. In the meantime, enjoy that promo for Star Trek Phoenix and all the other awesome promos that we have. Thank you guys so much for all of your patience in waiting for Chapter 20. is going to be coming soon, and we're rolling right in to the end of the season. Keep your fingers crossed for the Parsec Awards. We're nominated for Best Audio Drama. That's going to be announced over Labor Day weekend at Dragon Con. I'll be Twittering and Facebooking from there. In the meantime, you guys rock. Thanks for being awesome, awesome fans. I'll see you guys soon.
2: The Land of Cairns It is a world where gods can choose to live mortal lives, to directly affect events in the world, and often do. The river of magic is rising, monsters are moving into Cairn through tears in the fabric, the dead are escaping Kalan's abyss, and the children of Aj have returned, just as the prophets foretold. But even as these overarching events play themselves out, a piece of the puzzle falls into place in the seemingly unremarkable town of Avedon Hill. Eramis Cragen, retired Aaronic advisor, arrives at Avedon Hill and is asked to investigate the murder of Greta Platt, the Avedon Manor housemistress. But in doing so, Aramis uncovers secrets that threaten Cairn's very foundation. What begins as a search for justice becomes a fight for survival, all in a place where nothing is what it seems. Welcome to the land of Cairn. Welcome to Murder at Avedon Hill, a podcast novel by P.G. Holyfield featuring some of the great voices of podcasting and podcast fiction.
4: A perfect place for Greta Platt to escape the troubles of the day. So beautiful, so inspiring. Also a fine place for someone to catch her defenseless and end her life. Not
0: now, Joris. You chose the wrong time for one of your rants about undead threats rising there in There is
2: evil here in Avedon Hill. You can never be sure what will greet you at your door.
0: Of course it has to be alive. You should have known that. Monk. You promised us the hunter, and you have failed us. You promised us a power beyond our understanding, and again,
6: you have failed us. You
5: have not seen what I have seen. Events are transpiring that neither you nor I can
6: affect. Aaron's powers have peaked from under those covers. I hope you both survive long enough to find a use. Brother of Aaron, look how
0: you've aged. You've spent so much of your life in darkness.
2: Murder at Avadon Hill by P.G. Holyfield. Sit back and let the mystery unfold. Learn more at pgholyfield.com and patiobooks.com. In 1968, there was Night of the Living Dead.
0: Again, in
2: 1978, there was Dawn of. The
6: In keeping with the classic horror cornerstone of George A. Romero's visionary grip ah, right Necropolis Studio Production presents an audio drama set in the near future, where a plague ravages the world leaving millions transformed into flesh-eating zombies. No, 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 no. A group held up in a stronghold in the mountains of North Carolina struggled to survive, as they live in The Age of the
3: Zombies. Find us on the web at www.acropostudioprod.com
5: If you're reading this, Gotham City really and truly is dead. Wasn't How did we come to this? Well, it's not like Gotham was America's favorite city to start with, and after the contagion and then the 7.6 earthquake that reduced most of the city to rubble, why not just call it a loss, cut it loose, and move on? It's the easy thing to do, it's the cheaper thing to do.
6: You're a bureaucrat who's playing at war, and we're going to have to pay the price. And that's just what the government did.
3: This is the only diplomacy left, the diplomacy of strength.
5: Gotham City is now officially known as the No Man's Land.
4: There's no law anymore. And I'm scared. I'm scared.
0: Projects.com
2: You dug yourself out of the underground facility in Virginia, traveled north, and did battle with the first mammals, took a ship to a new world with a pirate, outsmarted some aliens who played God, followed a pair of friends into the afterlife. On September 1st, 2009, join Chris Moody Host of Podio Media Chat and Steam Pod as he releases his new fiction series Catusverse find out more information at fiction.chrismoody.net
6: of war.
5: War is a cowardly escape from the problems of peace.
6: From the chaos of new government.
5: Ready to kneel at the foot of the
1: Federation? Are we really so desperate?
6: They're not prepared for a war. From the ambitions of a powerful few. An assassination attempt. It's the usual poison. The head of Starfleet Intelligence. It is logical. Will rise a new ship. Ascension class Starship Phoenix. And a new crew.
4: Chief Engineer. You are not seriously going to allow that mucket to steer the ship.
6: Unlike any that Starfleet has ever seen. I don't want him on my ship. And for one captain... What am I missing here? The decision stands, Captain. I won't make it easy. The answers will lie in the space between war and peace.
5: She can't take much more of this, Captain. Charging assault phasers. Fire!
6: Star Trek Phoenix... From the ashes of time comes the birth of a new saga.
2: There are a number of things that
6: we can all do to help stop the spread of the coronavirus and protect ourselves and our families. One is simply to clean your hands often. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds, especially after you've been in a public place or after blowing your nose, coughing, or sneezing. If you don't have access to soap and water, then make sure you use a hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol. And finally, avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth with unwashed hands. These are some simple things that we can all do
2: to help protect ourselves and our families from the spread of of coronavirus. Be well, everybody.